You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, uh, about a year ago, uh, Rachel and I, maybe it was two years ago, we, we took a little trip into the city uh, just to have mom and dad time and, and get away from the hustle and bustle of five kids and so we rented a little Airbnb downtown, and uh, we, we, uh, we slept. We did a lot of sleeping, that's what we did. But when we eventually woke up, uh, we said, hey, what, what do you want to do? And so we kind of were tossing around ideas, and some of them were real adventurous. We were they're not really adventurous for you guys, but for us. You know, they involved going out of the house. And so they were, you know, like, oh, let's go to the new Ferris wheel. And we were like, no, let's not do that. Or let's, let's go to the aquarium. We were like, no, and so we were like, let's go get coffee, and so that's what we did. Um, but once we had coffee, then we had to answer the question what we were going to do, and we wound up at a, this is a long story for a really short example, we wound up at a, uh, a used bookstore, and it was just an absolute ton of fun, uh, just rifling through all of these books, and, uh, and we walked away determined that we were going to get some of our favorite books. Um, closer to their original publishing date. So at the very least, I wanted the, you know, I wanted it to be hardcover. I wanted it to be dirty. I wanted it to have like a, a note, you know, written from like a, a, a mother to a son or, or something fantastic like that. And so we started ordering all these books. And, and one of my favorite ones that we got in, because it is, I think, from the, the 1940s, and it, it is beaten all up, but it looks like it's been so well read that you can only imagine uh, the impact that this book has had on whoever has owned it before me. That book is The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald. Anybody read that book before? Fantastic. One person in the back. Everyone, you have failed so far on sermon illustrations. Anybody watch the movie? There was a really bad cartoon movie made like 20 years ago about it. Good. I can just make up whatever I want about the illustration at this point in time, and you guys will have no clue. So that works. So it's uh, The Princess and the Goblin. It is uh, a movie that takes uh, place, a book that takes place uh, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, that can't be right. Um, it, it's about a princess that, that grows up in this wild wilderness mountain kingdom. And what she doesn't know is that there are goblins that live in the old mines of the kingdom that have been closed up for years and years and years. One day, while this princess is, is wandering through this castle house that she stays in, she makes her way upstairs and she meets her, her fairy great-great-great-grandmother. And the great-great-great-grandmother gives her this little gift. She gives her this little ring and she tells her the ring is not the actual gift, but instead the gift is what is tied onto this ring, which is a magical invisible thread. So that if she ever becomes lost or if she ever is in trouble, all she need do is take the ring off, feel for the thread, and follow the thread, and it will bring her back home to her. And so as the story progresses, she eventually winds up in danger down in the, the mines with these goblins, and, 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 and in a moment of panic and fear, she remembers the promise of the grandmother. And so she takes the ring off, and she begins to follow the thread. And the thread doesn't lead her where she thought it would lead her, which is kind of what she thought was the most direct path back up to the surface and up to the home, but it leads her through these 
winding curves, even to the point of one time what feels like a dead end, but she continues to follow the thread until she finally comes home. When we read Scripture, there are these threads that run from Genesis through Revelation. These threads that the Lord has put within Scripture that if and when we follow them, they they lead us home. They lead us back to Genesis 1 and 2. They lead us back to the garden and ultimately they lead us back to the Lord. Now one of those most prominent threads in all of Scripture is quite honestly probably not one that we think much about, but that thread is the thread of rest or Sabbath. The thread of rest or Sabbath. This was the primary covenantal rhythm of the people of God. It was the thing that in many ways said to the world around them that they were the chosen, beloved people of God. Sabbath rest was the primary topic of argument and anonymity between Jesus and the religious rulers. You could even say that it was Sabbath rest in many ways that got Jesus crucified. Sabbath rest plays an incredibly large role in the story of Scripture. And it honestly plays a large role in our life as well. The BBC a couple of years ago did a massive international study from participants from every continent with people living permanently on it and, uh, and found out two shocking truths. It's going to blow you away. First one, no one feels like they get enough rest. Shocking. I know, right? But here, here was my favorite finding that they found. It wasn't that they that people didn't get enough rest. It's that it appeared that no one could accurately describe what rest really was. That there was no agreed-upon definition. Sometimes people kind of chopped rest down to the lowest common denominator, and they called it sleep. But even people that defined rest as sleep and would tell you that they got enough sleep when asked, do you feel restful, they would say no. People just couldn't get their arms around this topic. And yet, Scripture clearly tells us that we were built for rest. And so this morning, we are in Leviticus chapter 25, and we are looking at two primary commands of the Lord on rest, and specifically Sabbath rest. Now, Sabbath, as a Hebrew word, literally means stop. And so what we're talking about here when we talk about Sabbath rest is real, full, complete rest. And so let me read for you verses 1 through 22 of Leviticus chapter 25, and then we will ask the Lord, what is this rest that he commands, and why do we so desperately need it? Leviticus chapter 25, starting in verse 1, it says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. 
You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land, the Sabbath of the land. It shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, for your hired worker, the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. He goes on says, You shall count seven weeks of years, or seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all of your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes of the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of Jubilee, each one of you shall return to his property. If you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another. But you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and you shall dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit. You will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating still some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. Today we are looking at Sabbath rest for the people of God. Three truths the Lord shows us about what rest actually is. First, Rest is not earned, it's given. Rest is not earned, it's given. Second, rest is linked with lordship. Rest is linked with lordship. And finally, rest points us to redemption. First, rest is given and not earned. Leviticus chapter 25 lays out two new and final key observances for the people of Israel. The second half of Leviticus really is preparing the people of Israel to move with the Lord in their midst into the promised land. They're learning how to be the people of God as they live in the promised land. And the Lord gives them two key observances even above and beyond the festivals that we spoke of last week. And these observances are the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. The Sabbath year is the seventh year after the people of God have entered into the promised land. 
the Lord God in, in Genesis begins for us a rhythm of creation where six days he worked and on the seventh, the day, the number of completion, he rests. And the Lord speaks and institutes this same rhythm of Sabbath rest for the land. Six years, the people of God could sow and reap, but on the seventh year, they would Sabbath, literally stop, cease from sowing and reaping in the land, and the people of God would rest as God himself did in creation. The year of Jubilee built off of the Sabbath year. After seven years of Sabbath, or seven Sabbath years, 49 years, after that cycle, the 50th year, beginning on the Day of Atonement, would be what was called the year of Jubilee, a sort of super Sabbath, if you will. Once again, the people of God, now for the second year in a row, because they would be coming off of a Sabbath year, would let the land rest. There would be no sowing, there would be no reaping, there would be no pruning or gathering from the vineyards, but this year included even more observances, even more restrictions on work, even more rhythms that the Lord would institute to ensure that the entire kingdom of God rested. And when I say the kingdom of God, I want you to hear the people of God dwelling in the place of God under the rule of God. The people of God in the place of God under the rule of God. The intention in the year of Jubilee was to ensure that the entire kingdom of God rested. Now, why is this in these commands, why are they so important? Why didn't the Lord just advise Israel to rest if he wanted or thought it was good for them to rest? Why must he command them to rest? And the truth is this, he has to command them to rest because rest cannot be earned. Again, if you've been here, you've heard me say this many times, but go back again to the beginning where it all starts. And the people of God in perfection lived in perfect rest. Now that doesn't mean that they lived without work, right? Adam and Eve had a commission in the garden. They were to work and keep the garden and they were to go out to subdue the land and to bring it under the perfect rule and reign of God as the Garden of Eden was. But work for Adam and Eve and the perfection of the garden, it did not diminish them. Right? It didn't take from them. It didn't leave them poured out. It didn't leave them incapable of engaging, of loving or caring for one another, or incapable of enjoying the Lord. Work for Adam and Eve did not take from them, but in fact, it gave to them. It made their life whole. It led to flourishing, to completeness or shalom, as it was called in the Hebrew. They lived in perfect rest. But when sin came in, the Lord God himself cursed the man. He cursed the world and he cursed the ground. And when he did so, rest became impossible to achieve, impossible for humanity to earn. If you don't believe me, just think about it for a second. We are one of the most technologically advanced societies 
in our world, and we are absolutely the most technologically advanced time in the history of the world. Right? I, I got to ride in a car this past week as we were with friends that had heated and cooled seats. How awesome is that? Right? I have black leather seats that in the summertime do not cool me. They give me third-degree burns. Right? We are the most technologically advanced society. We are more efficient in our abilities to work than we ever have been. We have more medical advances than ever. We sleep on $1,000 mattresses. The most expensive things in my home used to be a TV. It's now my mattress and my pillows. Right? There are millions of books on rest and mindfulness and relaxation and meditation. But I guarantee that none of you would claim that you live in perpetual rest. And it's not that we haven't tried, because we have. It's just that we haven't found how we can get it. And that's how we try and achieve rest, by getting it. Right? If you don't believe me, then give yourself this hypothesis. It's almost Thanksgiving. In any job leading up to Thanksgiving, or any large or substantial break or vacation, what are you doing in the week leading up to it? Trying to ensure that you've done enough so that you can rest. Right? Oh man, I got a vacation coming up. How's the week before your vacation? It's terrible. I have to work double. So you're working the same amount. Probably more. Right? And then what happens when you get home from a vacation? You're exhausted. I've got five kids. I love vacations. They scare me to death. I don't, have enough, I don't have enough energy for vacation with my family, right? And if you post about your vacation on Facebook or Instagram or whatever else, I love you, you're a liar, okay? No one posts about what Disney World is actually like, which I'm fairly certain is one of the disciplines of the Lord. We can't earn rest We've tried, and it does not work. And it's why the Lord commands it. Because that which He commands, He enables His people to fulfill. We used to have this really clever saying in church planting when you were trying to raise funds for a church. And we would say, if it's the Lord's will, it's the Lord's bill. And uh, we just said that because no one would give us money and we were trying to encourage one another. Um, but it's true, right? Like the Lord in his commands provides for it. You know how I know it? The Lord said, let there be light. And there was. Imagine that. And so the Lord himself says to Israel, not only that they will observe these commands and these rhythms, but he makes it possible He's leading Israel into a place where they can rest. He promises to provide for them food during the rest, even while work is prohibited. Psalm 27, verses 1 and 2, one of my favorite psalms, says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, 
the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early. Amen? Amen. And it's vain that you go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You know, as I was preparing this passage, I came upon something that I'd never heard before, and it was, it was crushing to me. It was incredibly saddening. The commentary said there's no evidence in Scripture, and there's not actually any evidence outside of Scripture, that Israel ever kept the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. That would mean that by seven years into the promised land, they had already forsaken the rhythms of God that they had given him. And I wonder and I ask myself, especially in a season where I so long for rest, and I think to myself, why would you ever not? Like, I'm thinking we need to declare a Sabbath rest within mercy's door. You know, like, I'm in. Why wouldn't they? And I think the only reason is the same reason for us, which is that they likely lacked the faith to enter into that Sabbath rest. A faith that the Lord would provide for them. And this doubt robbed them of the chance of rest. Israel, rather than receiving rest from the Lord, tried to work hard enough that they could provide for themselves enough to finally earn rest. And in so doing, they actually forfeited rest. Early on uh, in the first year of Mercy's Door, one of our core leaders was talking to me and I said, hey, what do you think of Mercy's Door, the church? Uh, You know, you've only been here a couple months. Uh, What's the Lord doing in your life? What's he encouraging you with? And the response was, I've never heard someone tell me to rest in the Lord. And I said, tell me about that. And they said, I've heard a lot of people tell me to work, to obey, to try harder, to do better in the Lord, but no one has ever told me to rest in the Lord. And the Lord himself is constantly telling us to rest in him. There's an invitation this morning as we look at the fact that rest is not earned but given, that you and I might finally open our hands to the Lord today. And receive from him. He is the giver of all good gifts, and that includes rest. Rest is not earned, it is given. Second, rest is linked with lordship. When uh, Rachel and I lived up in Chicago, and before I was uh, a full time pastor and working in ministry, uh, my mom would, would call up to us, and I think we, at that point in time we had four kiddos, and, and we'd talk maybe once a week, and she'd say, Hey, how's your week going? And every time I would answer with, oh, it's just been a crazy week. And eventually, like a good and loving mother would, she stopped me and she said, hey, um, when has it not been a crazy week? And, and I got really defensive and I, you know, I started to rattle off all the things in my life that I had to do, right? I had a stressful job. I was traveling a ton for my job. We were, we were helping to plant a church up in Chicago. We had four kids, you know, that none of them slept. We had a, a little baby at the, that point in time. We were trying to finish projects on the house. We were trying to meet our neighbor and lead a small group and blah, 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 blah. I just started rattling off all these things that we were doing. And as I said them, I could hear myself thinking 
that all of these things were things that I had to manage and that ultimately I had control over. You know what the problem was? I couldn't manage them and I didn't have control over them. Rest is inherently tied to lordship. You know, if you read through the curse in Genesis 3, you'll realize that much of the curse is tied back to what Adam and Eve thought they wanted when they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They believed that they were sufficient to be the Lord God, that they were sufficient to rule and reign like God, which is why they ate. And when they ate, the Lord gave them in some ways what it would be like for them to be Lord and what it looked like was the curse. They were insufficient to make life. And so childbearing was cursed. They were insufficient to sustain life on their own. And so man no longer lived eternal with God but perished. They were insufficient to rule and reign and make the land obey them. And so the land rebelled against them. Thorns and thistles they harvested rather than produce that obeyed them. The Lord God said, you want to be Lord? This is what happens. And it's why in our lives we don't experience rest because we don't fully experience the Lordship of God. The Sabbath year, this seventh year, was a break, not just for the people of God, but the land of God. And it was a reminder that the land needed to Sabbath just like the people. Or another way to put it is the people and the land were the same. They were both creation. Neither one of them were creators. And because of that, they needed to reflect their Creator and rest. They needed to hear that there was only one Lord. As the Shema says, the Lord our God is one. The refrain of the people of God. There is one Lord. Not the Lord and a bunch of mini-lords, you and I. There is one. And God reminds Israel of lordship again in the year of Jubilee. Much of the year of Jubilee, the additional kind of prerequisites or characteristics of that celebration was helping Israel to see that they didn't actually own anything. They didn't own the land. They didn't get to call the shots. The Lord did. They didn't own the produce that the land provided. The Lord did. In fact, they didn't even own themselves. They couldn't sell themselves off in order to pay off debts, but for a period of time, and then they must be returned to their original estates. John the Baptist in the New Testament is speaking to his disciples, and he poses this question to them. He says, what do you have that you have not been given? And he tells them the answer. The answer is nothing. You did not earn your way into this world. You did not earn your way into your family. You did not earn a single beat of your heart 
or breath in your lungs, everything you have, you have been given, given by the Lord. You know, sometimes we, we contrast the, the lordship, the rule and reign of God with the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of God. But I think oftentimes that's why we miss out on rest, because what we don't see is that the lordship of God is the greatest kindness and mercy in many ways that he gives us. If you don't believe me, listen to the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor they reap nor they gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious then about clothing or what you will wear? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, how they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We do not rest because we have not joyfully given to the Lord the Lordship that belongs to Him. We have not given to the Lord joyfully rule and reign over every aspect of our lives. Now here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the Lord is only Lord over the things that you allow Him to control. What I'm saying is that the Lord is in control over all things, but we are foolishly grasping at air, believing that we are the ones holding all things in our life together. And what I would tell you is that if you ever realize that you're holding nothing, you are being held by the Lord our God. Or maybe to put it another way, you are being crushed underneath of a weight and a burden by trying to be Lord when you are not and never will be able to carry it. Corrie Ten Boom was a woman in the midst of World War II in the Netherlands that her and her family hid a number of Jews during this reign of terror by the Nazis. And she tells the story in one of her uh, autobiographies of early on in her life with her father, a father who I, I wish in many ways I understood my heavenly father the way that this man did. One day she recounts the story of asking him uh, uh, when she was a young girl about a particularly adult subject. And she just asked the father to, to begin to tell her about this difficult subject, and, and he told her, not right now. And she said, why won't you tell me about this? And he said, because you don't need to bear the weight of it. She said, when we, he said, when we go on a trip, and it's you and I, we pack a similar amount of things. But how big is the bag that you carry? She said, it's small. And he said, how big is mine? And she said, it's large. And he tells her, in effect, 
let me carry those burdens right now. You are not able to carry them. And I don't need you to carry them. Instead, I just need you to be with me. And the Lord's invitation for us is do not try to carry that which is not yours to carry. He is sufficient to carry the burdens of this world, the burdens of our lives even, the burdens even of our eternity. And His invitation to us is simply to be with Him. Rest is not earned, it is given. Rest is linked with lordship. And finally, rest points us to redemption. The year of Jubilee had two real practical results to it. It had the results of liberty for the people of God, and it had the results of return for the people of God. In the year of Jubilee, Israel was liberated. They were liberated first from the curse of the ground. For six years, and then finally rest on the Sabbath, and then for 49 years, and then rest on the 50th, Israel contended with the results of sin and death in this world. They lived within a broken world trying to sow and to reap only to be met oftentimes with land that would not work as it ought to work. It would provide a harvest that lacked, that was not good enough or sufficient enough seemingly to provide for them. But in the year of Jubilee, they were freed from that curse. They didn't have to contend with a broken ground. Instead, the Lord said Himself, He would provide enough for three years for them during that time. But they were also freed from bondage. Quite literally, one of the key components of the year of Jubilee is that if any Israelite had been sold into slavery, bondage, or indentured servitude, typically because of debts, maybe because of sin, in the year of Jubilee, no matter what, no equivocation, they were to be set free. The Lord is showing Israel that with rest in Him also comes liberty and freedom. Tim Keller, an author and pastor I love in a book called Every Good Endeavor, he writes this, Anyone who cannot obey God's command to observe the Sabbath is actually a slave. Self-imposed one even. Your own heart or our materialistic culture or an exploitative organization or maybe all of the above will be abusing you if you don't have the ability to be disciplined in your practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is therefore a declaration of our freedom. It means that we are not slaves. Not to our culture's expectation. Not to our family's hopes. Not to our medical school demands. Not even to your own insecurities and fears. It is so vitally important that you and I learn to speak the truth to ourselves with a note of triumph that we can rest because we are free. You know, there's, there's a picture developing in this year of Jubilee as the Lord God invites Israel to cease 
from their strivings and their work and their labor and to be freed out of any bondage that they have fallen into. Where is Israel coming from when the Lord gives them this set of laws in Leviticus? They're coming out of Egypt where they slaved and toiled day after day in back-breaking, excruciating, unending labor. And they were in bondage, enslaved to the king of Egypt. And the Lord has said, I have rescued you from there. I have freed you from that labor. I have freed you from that bondage. But you know what else he says in this? You'll find yourself right back into it. You'll find yourself again enslaved to labor and toil that does not stop. You will find yourself again in bondage, even in the promised land. And so again, I will bring rest to you. Rest that grants you freedom. You see what the Lord is doing here? He's saying, I will continue to bring you rest. I will continue to bring you freedom and liberty until one day it will finally be forever. The year of Jubilee brought liberty and freedom, but it also brought return. The rhythm of the year of Jubilee, even in the liberty of the people of God out of slavery or bondage, was that they could return, return to the land that the Lord would give them. Any land that was sold would have to be returned. This is why there's that little provision from 13 down through 17 about how people should buy and sell the land. Because they weren't actually buying and selling the land because the land didn't belong to Israel. It belonged to the Lord. All they were doing at most was buying and selling the ability to raise crops from the land for a period of time. But after a period of time, when land would have been sold away or traded because of debt or sin, or poor choices, the Lord established a time when it would be returned to the place where it ought to have been all along. Think about that. Even if they found themselves in bondage, even if they had lost the ancestral land that they had been given, every Israelite would know that if they just waited, the Lord Himself would return all that they had lost. Do you hear those words over you for the Lord? That even now as we wait, as we flail, as we suffer, as we deal with sorrow or as we strive, the truth is the same for us, that there is coming a day when the Lord will return to us what we have lost. Have you ever felt crushed under a burden? Have you ever felt crushed under a debt? Have you ever felt crushed believing that you could never get free from the things that entangled you? Maybe it's really practical. Maybe it's school loans or financial debt that you just never can imagine that you'll pay off. Maybe it's a physical illness or disease that feels like it is slowly chipping away at your body and will never be healed. Maybe it's trauma from your past. Maybe it's sin and the repercussions of that sin that you have committed and suffered that you simply can't get out from under. 
And the Lord tells us that none of those debts, none of those situations, none of those burdens are final because He is coming to bring us rest. Listen, if you want to know a man's true relationship with the Lord, then look at whether or not he can rest. Look at whether or not his life is marked by striving and working, trying to finally get to the place where he finds rest. Because a man at rest may work hard, but underneath of the surface, all is calm. You guys ever seen a duck on a water? Above the surface, it floats along exactly like I do in my parents' pool during the summer. Right? But underneath of the water, its feet is working furiously. This is what happens for me when I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't get back to sleep. My body may look like it's at rest, but my mind and my heart are anything but at rest. A thousand cares, a thousand worries, a thousand emails I have not responded to, a thousand things on the to-do list that are undone. It's our life, not truly at rest, but Jesus says, come to me. All who are laboring, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, if you, if you leave here and you think to yourself today, I, I, need, to, I need to find rest. If you think, I must go and get rest. If you think, I must do better at rest. Then I've failed in preaching and you've failed in hearing. Because what you need to hear is that you are united to Christ by His death and resurrection. And for those that are united to Christ, we are united to the man of rest. We can abide, as Pastor Brett said, in Him. Rest in Him. Find Him worthy and faithful and sufficient to give us all that He has promised. I'll end with this. Again, from that book by Tim Keller. All of us are haunted by the work under the work. That deep need for us to prove ourselves to save ourselves, to gain a sense of worth or security or identity. But if, or even better yet, when, we experience gospel rest in our hearts, we are free from the need to earn our salvation through work. Instead, we will have a deep reservoir of refreshment that continuously rejuvenates us, restores our perspective, and renews our passion. Church, hear this. In Christ, you and I have deep, eternal gospel rest. Pray with me.